Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, welcome to the third in this series, Thinking Like a uh, Social Scientist. My name is George Gaskell. I'm uh, co-director of the school, and it's my pleasure to introduce Professor Saul Estrin. Saul was in the economics department, and then he decided to take a trip up the road to the London Business School, where he held a number of important positions. And he's come back to the school to be head of the new management department. Uh, he's an economist by background in uh, labor economics and industrial economics. He's also, uh, in his spare time activity, a member of Bearings Emerging Markets. Bearings is a name we hear a bit about these days because uh, of the Society Generale uh, losses, which were something like is it four or five times bigger than Bearings lost in the uh, late 90s, as I recall. But intriguingly, he's also an, on the academic panel of the Postal Regulator. So I'm going to check with Saul what that means and whether any complaints about the first-class post can be delivered straight to him. Saul. Thank you very much. Um, you say that's working. Well, um, it's slightly a difficult task to think about how to write um, a lecture about thinking like a social scientist in management. What I decided, to, the way I decided to approach it, is um, essentially to lay out a problem um, and write a survey or present a survey about how it's been addressed. Um, you know, social sciences typically start with definitions. Uh, I went, to, of course, uh, to Wikipedia to look for the definition of management. It was rather interesting. It's a completely uh, standard uh, definition, planning, organizing, leading and controlling an organization towards accompanying a goal. Uh, the word um, comes from Italian, um, and I had thought that management was about herding... Um, uh, cats, but in, in fact it from, comes from handling a horse. So the animal thing is there. Um, if you get slightly more specific about the areas of management when you're thinking about taking an organization towards a goal, a series of key things come straight out. You need to manipulate your resources to achieve the goal, and those resources can be financial, which is why finance is a big component of management. They can be human resources. It can be technological, which is why innovation plays a major role. You can have the whole area of motivating, the, the leadership area and the economics of incentives. You actually have to design the organization itself. Some of you may have attended Dominic Cassidy's lecture on uh, Monday night in which he was discussing whether one of his arguments was that complexity of an organization will be an advantage in the future rather than a disadvantage, essentially because of the benefits of network effects. You need information systems to track the progress towards goals. And the key thing, perhaps, is that management is not a subject, per se. It's the application of a series of disciplines, economics and finance, sociology and psychology, towards a, a set of questions that I've just been defining for you. So that's management. I'm going to look at a particular thing within management, um, which is entrepreneurship. Um, I thought that was quite a th fun thing to, to look at for the simple reason that, of course, instead of 
management is typically conceived of as thinking about how to, or how to make an existing organization work well or better. Um, it's, of course, equally well applied to the question of um, uh, how do you start a new organization from scratch. And so that's the topic of today. Let me outline, I think the outline, uh, um, uh, uh, George suggested a, 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 um, that I try to um, sort of finish quickly, but, so uh, uh, um, unfortunately I'm not likely to do that. And the reason for that is that this lecture has indeed got a, like, like, thinking like a social scientist, it has a beginning and a middle and an end. So what I'm going to do, I've begun to do, is talk about definitions. I'm then going to briefly summarize quite a large literature, very briefly and extraordinarily superficially, summarize a literature. I'm then going to do from that to just pick on a few hypotheses that come out of that literature. There's a huge number of hypotheses. I'm just going to pick, in fact, three. And I'm going to discuss how we might test those, and given the rest of the literature, what other controls we better have. The next part of thinking like a social scientist is, of course, okay, you've got your hypothesis, you've got an idea of what should things should look like, how the hell do you get the data to test it? Okay, and then I'm going to talk about data and variable definition, then I'm going to talk about the results, and then I'm going to draw the conclusions. I think the key thing about conclusions in the management literature is not actually just repeating what you've found, but essentially putting into the context of what are the limitations of what you found, which help you to define from what you have done, what has to be done next. So this slide, the outline of the lecture, also to some extent defines the methodology. Well, let me turn um, to defining the entrepreneur. Um, I'm not going to just read my slides, and to some extent I'm going to use the slides as an alternative to doing the reading. Um, the, the, <clears throat> the entrepreneur can be, obviously there are lots of potential ways of defining and thinking about an entrepreneur. I think the two that are relevant, or might be relevant to what we do, are the way from Comes, they both come from the Austrian school. The Austrians seem to be very interested in the whole notion of entrepreneurship. Uh, one view of an entrepreneur is an entrepreneur that is an individual that takes risk, doesn't know an outcome, sees an opportunity, and grabs it. Right? And in that sense, the, the, uh, I, live, I work in Tower One, the uh, young lady who over the summer uh, bought um, a little uh, Italian van, uh, had a cappuccino machine outside it and sold cappuccinos for students going in and out, is a Kurtzian entrepreneur. Right? Opportunity, money could be made, the market needed something, and she filled it. Is this clear? Now, some of you have a different view of an entrepreneur, and an entrepreneur is someone who develops a completely new product, a completely new innovation, brings it to market and transforms the nature of consumption. Right? Apple is an entrepreneurial company, you might be tempted to say, and the iPod or, or the iPhone is an entrepreneurial product. 
I'm using these two examples to illustrate the difference between what's seen as Kurtzian and Schumpeterian entrepreneurship. Schumpeterian is the innovator, completely innovative uh, 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 entrepreneurial activity. Now, as you can immediately see, the distinction is not that sharp. Okay. The other point I think is clear. I think if you were making an entrepreneur, if you were doing a definition of an entrepreneur, you would be um, unwise to ignore the issue of risk taking, right? Because at the heart of an entrepreneurship is both spotting an opportunity and being willing to grasp it. And you might also be unwise to ignore the impact of entrepreneurship on the national economy. And you will also be unwise to ignore the fact that if you're acting as an entrepreneur, you're not acting in other ways. Right? So you should not ignore the opportunity costs of entrepreneurship. So that's enough of definitions of entrepreneur. I really use this slide uh, only to illustrate a general theme, which is that uh, a theme made uh, by William Baumol, for example, um, on entrepreneurship, which is entrepreneurship is not an absolute. It is related to the nature of society uh, um, which is in which it place. So transition, just to remind you what do I mean by transition, transition is the process whereby um, series of countries in Central and Eastern Europe and what was once the Soviet Union changed in two particular ways. The ownership arrangements were transformed from socialist ownership arrangements to private ownership arrangements and the economic mechanism for allocating resources was transformed from planning to demand. Okay? And so I'm going to look at entrepreneurship in that Suffice it to say, that when you first do the transition, undertake transition, there's economic chaos, there's enormous numbers of opportunities. The Kurtz uh, entrepreneurship, there's a huge number of opportunities, enormous number of gaps in the nascent market. As the economic situation stabilizes and settles down, you move over to more of a Schumpeterian. Hopefully, you move to more of a Schumpeterian. Okay, and I only put this slide up to make the point that the characteristics of the entrepreneurship you observe are not independent of the, of the, of the economic and social order. Okay, I want to talk about barriers to entrepreneurship in transition markets. There, I'm going to, I mean, there's a huge list of I mean, why isn't everyone an entrepreneur? Right? Or why isn't, aren't all uh, economy-driven part of their entrepreneurship? Well, that's too big a question. What is different between transition economies and other economies with respect to entrepreneurship is what I want to ask. Okay? And it seems to me that there's four areas that we need to talk about. The first is financial barriers. Communist regimes being communist regimes, they didn't much like private wealth, private ownership of wealth, and so there wasn't much private ownership of wealth. An entrepreneurial activity is a wealth-burning activity. Uh, it may pay returns, but uh, uh, you know, if you ever work for venture capitalists or whatever, one of the first things you'll be talking about is the so-called burn rate, at which you, your money part goes down 
while you're waiting for the revenue to start coming in. Okay? And you therefore need personal wealth to do this and people didn't have it. Well, you might say no problem. People go to capital markets to borrow it. These countries didn't have capital markets. They didn't even really, in the sense that we would understand, have banks. Right? So you don't have any of the institutions. You would not have had any of the institutions that would be available in the conventional market economy to, to, to provide the funds to allow entrepreneurship to occur. The institutional barriers, obviously one can go on about this at great length, but I'm going to say quickly. The key thing is that the legal system and the institutional system was, shall we say, immature. Most of these countries did not operate, all of these countries did not operate in the sense we would understand it, through the rule of law. Uh, they operated um, through, the rule, uh, through the rule of diktat, uh, through, through the operation of an organization of the Communist Party. Um, nonetheless, they did have laws. It's not that they didn't have laws. They just weren't of any particular relevance in the running of the economy. Okay? So if you look at Russia, Russia had a perfectly adequate commercial code written in the late, between the 1890s and 1910, and it covered a lot of quite important things that were terribly relevant at the end of the 19th century. And nothing was done after that. Uh, similarly, a country like the Czech Republic, or, or, which was a very sophisticated uh, economy in the interwar period, had actually a much better legal system than uh, Russia did, an uh, institutional system. <laughs> you know, the actual statute book looked better. But nonetheless, everything that happened post-war had not been incorporated. So what sort of things are missing? Well, in Russia, the sort of thing that was missing was the definition of profit. Right? There wasn't a, uh, actually wasn't a word for profit. Right? Uh, none of these countries had a mechanism for a firm to go bankrupt. So bankruptcy was simply absent. I'm just using this as an example of what I mean by... Um, should we say, an underdeveloped uh, uh, legal, immature legal system. It's also the case, it's all very well to have laws, but you see, you know, for better or worse, if you have laws, you need courts and judges and lawyers and indeed juries. And none, all of these things had, to a very significant degree, atrophied. On the commercial side, you know, there was still crime, people were murdered, and there were still judges that dealt with that. But on the commercial side, complete absence uh, of experience. The key implication, actually, is this: that um, you know, it's, I think there's a huge amount of work being done in economics that stresses that what underlies a market system operates because because people undertake voluntary exchange. That's what the market economy is. But you undertake voluntary exchange because you do understand that if, for some reason, there's a reneging on this voluntary exchange, you would have legal recourse. So in the absence of legal recourse, either because the law is not there or because it's not enforceable, you are undermining the potential for a market economy. And that's essentially, and that's particularly important for investors' rights. In, in principle, when I go to a market and I give some money and I get a bag of oranges, I've got a bag of oranges, it's not clear how often I will need my legal rights. 
right? But when I lend George sick of running this school and he decides he's going to be an entrepreneur and he's going to invent some brilliant product on the market, and when I lend him 50 grand to do that, right, I will want a piece of paper that basically says I'm going to get it back, right, or, or, or and a return from it. And that piece of paper is all I've got. So it's quite clear that recourse will be, to the law will be more common in that case, and I really do need to know that's going to work, or I'm not going to give him the money. Well, we all know, and I will be coming back to this later, you don't have to have a legal system. I lend George the money, he goes off, and he's off to the Caribbean before I link. Right? Now, one way is to sue him, another way is, is to go down the East End, find a few lads, sort off shotguns, uh, and, and make sure that he learns a lesson. Right? Now, if the legal system works, I don't need to do that. If the legal system doesn't work, perhaps I do. Right? So I don't want you to misunderstand. Economies can function without you know, a UK or US type legal system, but it will have characteristics that you may not want. Well, there's a certain amount of evidence on this. Um, I, I, sorry, I need, to, I need to say a couple of things before I explain this. <laughs> the, the last of my barriers was related to social uh, and cultural factors. Um, you know, there, are, there is work, uh, actually came out of the Centre for Economic Performance in, in the late 80s, that measured latent entrepreneurship in different countries and said entrepreneurship was a cultural phenomenon. Blanche um, Flower and Oswald did uh, some work with this. And there are very big variations in the level of entrepreneurship. I tend to the view that countries are inherently have the same level of entrepreneurship with different institutions and incentives. And that's essentially the underlying Dressing. Um, however, one thing is quite clear, which is that in the Soviet Union, uh, they, it's, a, it's a place that became communist in 1917, um, and there is no one alive, there was no one alive at the start of the transition with any memory of a capitalist economy. Any memory at all. There's not one generation, not two generations, it's three generations. If you go to the Czech Republic or Poland, there really are quite a lot of people work, quite a lot of people who remember capitalism. And anyway, communism was just not imposed to the same extent. In the Soviet Union, 100% of assets were state-owned. In countries like Poland, about 70%. There was still a large private agricultural and craft sector. Right? And so, you would expect quite a difference in entrepreneurial activity between these countries for cultural background reasons as well as the institutions. I'm just going to give a, a little bit of data to pick up on this institutional point that I was mentioning. Uh, it can't, you know, it, 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 measurement is key to all this work. Going beyond, going beyond uh, description requires measurement. Measurement requires getting access to information and thinking about how you can measure the sort of um, and I just give some examples of the sort of thing that has been collected on institutional environments which would be relevant to entrepreneurship. So if you take the UK, you want to start a business, there's essentially nine, uh, sorry, six separate procedures you have to undertake. 
If you wanted it the same in Russia, you have to do 50% more procedures. If you wanted the same in Bulgaria, you have to do 11 procedures. In the UK, entering a contract, right? Uh, 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 um, you, you see the figures I don't need to go through this time being what it is. It's also the case, if we use a measure of corruption, like the Corruption Perception Index, there's an enormous difference between the position of a country like the UK or Western Europe, which is typically all of whom are in the top 15 to 20, and the transition countries, all of whom are at the bottom end of these scales, Russia ranking. Well, so I've told you what transition was. I've told you what entrepreneurship is. I've tried to pin down what we mean uh, uh, by the fitness and institutional environment. Does this mean there'll be no entrepreneurship? No. It means, firstly, there'll be less entrepreneurship, and secondly, and this is the bit interesting, analytically, entrepreneurship will take a different form. And it'll take a different form because you will get better phrase, coping strategies. What are coping strategies? Well, we talked about a coping strategy. A mafia is a coping strategy uh, in the absence of uh, a system. Right? I will, I'm just mentioning a few of these, and I'm going to pick them up in my Right. The first is reputational incentives. Now, reputational incentives is essentially, uh, for example, uh, the willingness to use force and always to use force. Right? If you uh, sign a contract and you breach it, right? You, if you are, come from an organization that will always punish the breach of a contract by physical force, you will build a reputation for that, and then before too long, you won't need physical force. Right? <laughs> uh, um, because the reputation will really work for you. Another example, I'm just giving examples of strategies. Another example would be this, you don't have banks, you don't have private wealth, but there is still trade, and trade credit can start playing a much bigger role in financial information. I think the critical thing that I'm going to try and address in this talk is the role of networks. Already, in the plan, planning had a tremendous problem. I mean, you know, it's a completely different topic. But the trouble with planning is that it assumes a level of certainty which is not fair, which means that plans are always wrong. It is always the case that plans will have errors within them, and since they are complicated arrangements of transfers of resources from input to outputs, the errors that are built into planning just spread out to an economy. But the Soviet-type system concentrated enormous rewards on plan attainment. Right? Even though, in an aggregate sense, it was never possible to achieve the plan. Right? So, what would happen in that situation? Well, the answer is that the managers would set up between themselves networks, essentially the trade, uh, in order to allow each other to meet plans more easily. And so, one of the key characteristics of all communist economies was extraordinarily rich networks between managers as a substitute for market activity. And those networks, of course, survived uh, in the early years and still survive. So, I've already mentioned one issue um, 
One way of dealing with the capital scarcity is, for example, trade credit. Another way of dealing with capital scarcity, of course, is to be an entrepreneur, <laughs> but to do lots of other things, right? To be an, you know, Steve Jobs and all the entrepreneurs you can read about in the textbooks, you know, stopped work and went and became entrepreneurs. In a Soviet type of uh, environment, you can't do that. You in fact need uh, to keep a job. You need to go on working. Right? You need perhaps not to create on do one entrepreneurial activity, but multiple. I mean, there's something faintly crazy about being a multiple entrepreneur, right? Because you really should concentrate your effort in getting the one idea you've got to happen. But a coping strategy is to do lots of entrepreneurial activities at once, while still holding a job. So that's one set of coping strategies. The second set of coping strategies is essentially to use networks as a substitute for markets. And these are the hypotheses that essentially we're going to seek to look at. I just will mention one other strand of literature that I will be drawing on. I mean, as you're beginning to see, the, the issue in all of this, the analytical research issue when you're talking about entrepreneurs, is what exactly are you trying to explain? Right? Now, I've tried to define quite carefully what I'm trying to explain, which is why entrepreneurship might have a different level and take a different form in transition economies as in developed Western economies where markets and institutions are strong. Right? But much of the entrepreneurship which actually comes out of psychology and it's focused on the question, what are the characteristics of an entrepreneur? And I mention this because I will need, as I said to you, I'm going to have hypotheses and controls. You'll begin to get an idea where my hypotheses are going to be. My controls are obviously going to be about the characteristics of the people. So, just a few points to note. I just thought this was of interest. It's not, I won't be able to control for this. Entrepreneurship does seem to have a I'm not quite so sure I go so far as to say a genetic base, but certainly an experiential base, in the sense that when they went and looked at the people who were entrepreneurs in 1990 in countries like Poland and Hungary, what they discovered was it's people who either had been entrepreneurs pre-communism or it's people whose families had been uh, entrepreneurs pre-communism. Of course, in Russia, that was effectively impossible to test and to measure. Um, it's also the case, um, uh, more or less everywhere, that um, entrepreneurship is associated with education, and that was also true in the transition. Um, well, I'm, I'm not going to go into greater details, it's just for people to have a look at while I uh, get my breath together for the hypotheses. But there were some quite interesting things. Entrepreneurs do tend, uh, um, essentially, to believe they live in a better world than everybody else. They're uh, optimistic types. Um, they believe society is better. They believe governments are better. Uh, they don't believe that corruption is as bad as everyone thinks. Uh, 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 um, and they're, they're smart and greedy. Okay, that's uh, the characteristics that come out. What are my hypotheses? I'm going to look at three hypotheses. You can see where this, where this sort of brings it. My first hypothesis comes from the institutional environment. I'm going to argue that if I take a sample of countries, developed and less developed, and 
transition, I will find lower, uh, lower entrepreneurial activity in the transitional countries than in the developed and the less developed countries. Okay. Secondly, I'm arguing that this cultural effect is quite important, cultural historical effect is quite important, and therefore that the Soviet Union will itself be much worse in this worse or better, depending on what you think about entrepreneurship, will be different in this respect to even the other transition countries. That's hypothesis one, two, and three. There's one, two. Hypothesis three is what I've already hinted at. Networks will substitute the institutions. That means that people who are embedded in networks have an advantage. Okay. I'm sorry, it was a big overview of a literature. Three very short hypotheses. You're quite right, they could have been 30 hypotheses. Right. But these are the three I'm looking at. You will immediately see, methodologically, that the way I've got to do this is to combine thinking about what leads George to be an entrepreneur and the rest of you not with something that looks at George in the UK and George's counterpart in France and somebody else in Russia. So I have to combine the data on individuals those individuals, some of them have to be entrepreneurs, some of them not, so I can select the characteristics of, of entrepreneurs, which is why we discuss the characteristics of entrepreneurs. And at the same time, I have to go and look across country, because that's the way the institutional effects will come into play. Is that all right? Um, so here's the data set. I got hold of a big data set. This is, and now I'm turning from overviewing the literature to a piece of work that I happen to do. I got hold of a big data set from the Global Entrepreneurial Monitor. Uh, you can get it off the uh, internet if you want. Um, it's, it, it's 32 countries. It covers four years, about 2,000 people per country. So we're looking at about a bit over 100, 150,000 people. Allows me to look cross country, cross time, and cross individual. How do I define entrepreneurship? Well, there are lots of ways of defining entrepreneurship. I mean, this is where this is where you, that this is where it sort of gets serious. If, if, not serious, but if, until now it's been summarising literature. Now we're going to do the work. What I mean, lots of ways of doing it. Um, you have to have someone who is involved in setting up a firm. As a primary activity, you have to ask them a lot of questions and you get out of that a set of activities he defines entrepreneurial. And from that, you construct them. Either they're involved in this or they are not. They cannot be running a firm yet. It can't be operational. Right? You can't... Uh, an entrepreneur is not someone who runs a firm. It is someone who is involved in the activity of starting a firm. Or at least that's what I am looking at. You could look at entrepreneurs who were in running firms how would you measure institutional quality? Well, again, there are thousands and thousands of ways of doing this. I've gone down a particular way, which is extremely contentious, um, extremely contentious, but has an advantage. I'm going to use the legal system, uh, studied by Laporte et al., basically categorized countries in the world into five legal systems, including socialism, uh, English, French, German, Scandinavian, and Transition. This distinction is somewhat more subtle, but similar to the, the common law civil uh, code distinction. The argument that's behind this is essentially the, the British type of legal system, 
uh, is much more conducive to entrepreneurship because it's cheaper its flexibility um, and because it is able to adapt to changing situations, which is exactly what entrepreneurs are adapting to, whereas the codified systems of various sorts, be they French or German or Scandinavian, they're all different sorts of codified systems, are much less flexible and therefore much more likely to lean against you might say, well, that's a pretty, given all these things you've been talking about on institutions, that's a rotten way to measure it. It is a rotten way to measure it, but it has one very clear advantage, which is it is exogenous. Right? That is to say, I am not either <laughs> measuring institutions at measuring the same thing when I measure institutions and entrepreneurship, nor am I, have I got the possibility that instead of having on, uh, 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 institutions of Entrepreneurship, I actually have exactly the opposite, that is to say, entrepreneurship with institutions. These legal systems obviously were formed a long, long time before and through quite different processes to that that would drive entrepreneurship. And so I think exogenation is worth having um, in this respect. The independent variables I'm using, a lot of potential ones, um, networks, I'm going to ask basically if the person who's involved in this entrepreneur activity knows another entrepreneur who's a not great maker. And I also ask whether they're currently business themselves. You can be an entrepreneur and, get, and be running a firm. And obviously we expect networking relationships to positively influence their entrepreneurial activity. So just going back, hypotheses one and two my prediction is the British, the English legal heritage would be more conducive to entrepreneurship. Right? Uh, I'm separating out here transition economies, and I'm expecting uh, transition economies to be worse than all the others. And because of the social and cultural things, I'm assuming that Russia, I'm sorry, I'm not assuming, I'm hypothesizing, that Russia will be worse than all the other socialist economies. So that's my prediction there. My prediction on networking is exactly what you'd expect. The individuals that are well networked uh, 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 are going to be more like the entrepreneurs. What are my control variables? Well, I mean, they're all fairly bland. Um, but I'm picking up all the main things you heard earlier. Uh, gender's quite important in entrepreneurship. Uh, gender's a... Uh, 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 if you exclude the United States, uh, entrepreneurship is a boys' game. Really. Uh, if you include the United States, it's not. The United States is, uh, has no gender bias. In uh, entrepreneurship is a young person's game. Don't be surprised to learn that. Um, uh, being in current employment is important everywhere, right? which suggests financial constraints if you need money. Access to finance uh, is important for entrepreneurs and it's better to be educated everywhere in entrepreneurship. So we'll want to control all of those and some other things. I'm not going to put the regression analysis up. Obviously, this would, if it was a paper, then be the next uh, uh, 20 slides. Um, if I can just summarize the findings. Um, they're very strong, and they're quite unambiguous. Um, hypothesis one and hypothesis two are confirmed. That is to say um, that controlling 
for individual characteristics. Very important point, you know. I mean, some countries have less entrepreneurship because they have more old people, or they have uh, 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 um, lower levels of education, or they have uh, well, not less women, but whatever it might be. Right? And so when you observe, say, low levels of entrepreneurship in Russia, it could be because Russia's got a very unfavorable demography compared to some other countries. Right? Um, in the context of this equation, it's quite clear that that's, that is true, which I'll show you in a moment, but, but the countries which are socialist, were socialist, have had a socialist legal system, have lower levels of entrepreneurial activity, that is the probability of any given individual with a given set of personal characteristics being an entrepreneur is lower than in all the other legal forms and most particularly than compared uh, to English uh, And that coming from the Soviet, from Russia, I don't have any other former Soviet countries, leads to even lower levels of entrepreneurship than that level rating so hypotheses one and two are confirmed secondly um, individuals who are members of now uh, I, I won't go into the detail I, I tested this in a somewhat different way it's not really a cross country testing but, way. but individuals who are members of networks in Russia are more likely to be entrepreneurs but when you we did this in comparison with Poland and Brazil so we didn't look at all this is something you, you need to pick up by doing just a detailed comparison specific And this does not pertain in those other two countries, which again two countries are comparable to the capital and so on. And so the networking effect seems to be more relevant in explaining entrepreneurship in Russia than anywhere else. Control factors are more or less what you'd expect them to be. Uh, 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 young educated males are more likely to be on people with superior access to finance are more likely to be entrepreneurs, people currently employed are more likely to be entrepreneurs. So in that sense, uh, the standard results are confirmed as they should be. So what do I conclude? And I will have time for questions, you're doing that. Um, um, what do I conclude? Well, I just want to remind you what I've done, because this is, this is an exercise to illustrate uh, what it's like to think like a social scientist in management. <laughs> right? So I just want to r remind you what we've done. We had a focus of analysis on entrepreneurial activity and transition economies. We developed hypotheses essentially based on historical and cultural factors and resource questions, and combination of two, which allowed us to cross country and cross individual simultaneously. We found data sets, or we merged, stitched together a series of data sets some cross-country, some cross-individual, which allowed us to look at the dependent variable the rate of activity, or in fact the probability that someone is involved in becoming an entrepreneur. And the independent variables were related both to the environment in which they operate, the institutional environment in which they operate on the one hand, and their characteristics on the other. And finally, uh, we, we tested hypotheses within that, and we essentially, uh, and rather fortunately, confirmed. So what do I conclude? Well, 
You know, it wouldn't be social science if you didn't have some policy conclusions. So what is one policy conclusion? Well, supposing, and I, I haven't addressed this question, it would be a very good question. Do you want to raise the level of My uh, colleague, David Benita, I think, takes the view that entrepreneurship is, uh, is done by people who are uh, over-optimistic, right? And therefore, these are, these are people who are taking risks that are inappropriate, they mainly make mistakes, they mainly make money, they'd end up worse off than they otherwise would be if they just got, wouldn't just get this out of their head and go and get a job like the rest of us. Right? Welfare is reduced and therefore entrepreneurship is not a good thing. Right? I think that is argument somewhat. Um, it's nonetheless, in most policy environments, governments seek to stimulate entrepreneurship. And so, if you were to believe you should seek to stimulate entrepreneurship, what does it tell us? Well, quite an important thing it tells us is entrepreneurship has lots of implications for education policy and, of course, for training policy. Well, that's no surprise. If you want to have an entrepreneurial society, you basically uh, heard the radio this morning, the government's just noticed that the number of PhDs in sciences are yet again getting down. Uh, and, and this runs completely counter to any objective of trying to create a more entrepreneurial society. This is less relevant, of course, in the UK, but to some extent it's relevant in the UK, but in countries like the former Soviet Union, you've got to remember that being an entrepreneur in the Soviet Union was not something that was disliked, it was a crime. And, and if you were an entrepreneur and you were caught doing it, so to speak, you went to prison, if you were lucky. So, um, and so, there are cultural and historical factors about attitudes to entrepreneurship that governments might wish to address. Though it's not been my theme at all, but it would be extremely easy for it to have been a theme, it is absolutely clear that the resources and the availability of high-risk capital right, is very important and that attempts to substitute for risky capital by individuals' own behavior is at best imperfect. And finally, institutions are very important to entrepreneurship. Right? Uh, the way that legal systems are defined and operate. And within this, I think I would be tempted to say that, because I think it is quite an important finding, we did find, you'll remember, um, that networks do improve things. Right? That is to say, when institutions are weak, what you observe is far more network-based activity, right? substituting for the operation of markets. Nonetheless, there are two things that I think need to be said about that. The first is that networks really only substitute imperfectly for markets. That is to say, you're not in, in the first best solution. Right? And it would be much better to try and strengthen markets than, so to speak, try and strengthen networks. The second thing, which I think is a very common phenomenon in developing countries, right, is many of these institutional and social outcomes are part dependent. Now, what I mean by that is that if your market, the underlying 
legal infrastructure, if you want to call it that, that uh, under, under, underpins your market economy is weak compared to, as we talked about earlier. Networks will emerge to substitute for that. But one has to understand that those networks then get a life of their own. And those networks are threatened by reforms or changes right, that would allow a strengthening of the market economy. So the sort of situation we observe, to take an example now in Russia, right, in which essentially the legal, the legal arrangements have not been greatly strengthened, but networks have been enormously strengthened. Okay. Um, it is true that the situation is much better than it was in the rainy war of eight or ten years ago. But those vested interests, if you want to in a different way, right, then become immovable in their own right and a barrier to further development. Right? And so, um, though our hypothesis suggests that networks improve things, right, that is in itself a danger uh, for further development. So, I mean, they're just some obvious policy conclusions that come out of the analysis that we've done. And with that, I end. Professor, is thoroughly enjoyable. Uh, fascinated by LSE politics. I've never heard of the, the head of a uh, department hiring thugs from the East End to go and bash up the head of the school. This was uh, interesting. Relevant. Can I just take you straight to your final point, which was about the link with policy? I think one of the criticisms of social scientists is that um, there's not enough link with public policy. And I um, just wanted to ask you the question, I'll put it this way. For example, if you were asked to recommend to uh, emerging economies, transition economies, how they could develop policies to encourage entrepreneurship, do you think social scientists are compromised the moment they enter into the interface with the policy making? How far would you go? Would you simply present your findings or would you go the extra step and produce recommendations? You, you see, I probably see what I'm getting at here, the link between the social scientist and the actual policy maker because Policymakers often complain that social scientists are not addressing the key policy questions that are facing governments. Thank you. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's a good, you know, the interface between, uh, between research and policy is obviously a very good question. I think it is rather important that, um, that social scientists always do have some slides like this final one That being said, I think there, there are two or three reasons, I mean, I'm a little bit involved in policy work myself, there are two or three reasons why I'm non, I tend to be suspicious, let's say, of, of going from this to, to sort of putting up on a website, you know, uh, uh, Saul Estrin is available for policy advice at a fat fee to explain how to solve your entrepreneurial problems. Uh, one, why? Is, is a, well, first of all, because one of the things that's come out of this is, is uh, results are, are very uh, country, uh, very specific, very country specific. And I think that uh, findings from one place do not necessarily carry, over, carry very easily over to another. 
Secondly, needless to say, I've slurred over more issues than one wants to think about in this talk, but just take a, a simple, simple example. Um, the relationship between education and entrepreneurship is actually uh, a very confused one. As I've said this gently, and I've, got, I've got away with it by saying, well, more education, more entrepreneurship, but that's not really true. Right? There's some sorts of education that help and some that don't. And this is an area that frankly is not well understood. So I think one of the frustrations that policymakers might have is they come along and say, well, what is your answer? Right? And, and quite often it's probably wise to say, well, at the moment we don't really have an answer. And that's not what policymakers want to hear. So I mean, I think the interface, I think it is valuable. I think social sciences do have a the key thing they've got to say is, so to speak, when policies are obviously silly, and when they're not. I mean, I think, you know, you get a thrust of an argument from this. But policymakers want specifics that social scientists can't always deliver. So you give um, the legal framework as your proxy for uh, institutions. Uh, can you define what a social scientist means by institutions? And give some other examples of institutions that, or some other things that are institutions. At one level, this seems like um, commonsensical things that, that you pick up and um, use data to sort of give it a gloss. What would make it really forming is if we can compare it with other societies where the same things in your conclusion will help. For example, feudal society. Take Afghanistan. You know, almost everything that was said would be relevant, but you could also think of other things that are relevant there which are perhaps not relevant in the communist countries, and that would make it really interesting and worthwhile. Things like um, not allowing people entry because they are lower caste or wrong clan or whatever. Yes. I, I'm, I'm sort of going to not answer the question about institutions, but I, you may or may not notice it. I mean, uh, uh, um, it, you know, it's just another lecture what I, how to define institutions. I think, you know, institutions in some sense that you need to think about them as just the rules of the game of all social all social interactions and the rules whereby that occur in institutions. Nonetheless, if we look at, say, North, who won a Nobel Prize for his work on this, and it's probably a good starting place, um, immediately you'd want a distinction between formal and informal institutions. And you've seen that distinction implicit, right? Uh, 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 there I was with looking at, there is a sense in which hypothesis, my first, uh, first hypothesis are about the effect of, so to speak, a formal institution, which is a legal system. My second hypothesis is about an informal institution, which is a network. So, I mean, I, uh, um, I think you can have a high-level statement like I've just given, but turning that into, into measurements. And in a way, it's not, as I said to you, obviously I approach things in a empirical way, it's not even that the measurements itself so hard, it's just very novelty layout. And it is the case that if you ever look at various measures of institutions, the World Bank has an ongoing project 
the key things about it is all the measures of institutions typically are very closely correlated uh, uh, with one another. I had a PhD student who actually, the whole PhD was essentially on, about which ways different measures, of, in what ways were the measures different. And they aren't really correlated in any way. Um, the, the reason why, the real problem is not about the measurement, but about the exogeneity of institutions, right? You know, when we say weak institutions, we probably don't really mean weak institutions at an exogenous thing. Weak institutions are themselves a consequence of something else, perhaps a weak political system or a fractured society or a series of other things, right? And, and the institutions themselves are not the core external measure, and that's of course why I went to the measure I So it's not a good answer. But, um, I think. No, I don't think I'm going to quite solve Afghanistan. I mean, on Galton's point, I don't entirely agree with it, actually. It seems to me I deliberately chose a sample of countries, right, um, in which you were, uh, in which certain elements of the institutional structure were common. And then I was able to look at impact of variations on, on a common theme. You're absolutely right that your answers would be fundamentally different in a highly in a tribal society, in a caste-based system, etc., etc., etc. But my feeling is that that sort of stretching the experiment too wide, right? That is to say, I'm, I would have confidence that, say, the gender effect, or one of the really robust effects, would go through in all the societies in which I looked, and I might not have confidence it would go through in these other societies. And so I think when you're designing these, these are essentially experiments with controls. You have to narrow, it's, it is a fine judgment, but you have to narrow as well as get breadth. We are covering, I think, uh, 32 countries, including developing countries, but you're right, they're all middle income.